This is the memo by Howard Marks. Today, we're featuring another episode of The Rewind, in which Howard looks back on some of his memos over the years, discusses their origins, and considers their relevance to today's financial environment. Today, Howard reflects on Us and Them, which was originally published on May 7th, 2004. Here's Howard. I think the longer you're around the investment business, the more clearly you see the existence of and the difference between what I call us and them, the difference between the I know school and the I don't know school. Of course, they're not black, white. There's lots of shades of gray. There are people in the middle, although the traits of the I know school investor tend to go together. I describe them in the memo as a syndrome and the traits of the I don't know school investor tend to go together. Look, clearly over the last 52 years, I have observed members of the investment community and their behavior and concluded that there are differences and there are major differences and they affect performance in major ways. I think that in perhaps 97, but also 98 and certainly 99 and the first half of 2000, we witnessed or I witnessed the greatest bubble I had ever seen come into existence. I came into this business in 1968, 69, when there was already a bubble in existence called the Nifty 50. Its creation predated me and I got to witness its demise. I was involved in it. So I was affected by it, the demise. But the TMT, tech media telecom bubble of 98, 99, 2000, was the first one I saw build on my watch. And so I was able to observe and comment on the process. And of course, by this time, I had roughly 35 years experience in the business. And I think I was able to see phenomena and reach conclusions about them more accurately than before. This is 35 years of accumulated views on this subject written down in one place. But look, the truth is we all hold the positions we do because we think they're the right positions. And I became very convinced of the existence of the dichotomy and frankly, the error in being a member of the I know school. And so as with many of the memos, I just try to from time to time, write down everything I think on a given subject. And this was that for the dichotomy between knowing and not knowing. It turns out, if you look back, this was unplanned and unintentional that in each decade, I've written one memo on the analogy between sports and investing. And I think there are a lot of similarities. I think one of them was entitled, How You Play the Game. And I think it talked mostly about the differences in playing style or game plans from one team or player to the other. And there are many great players and they have played many different ways and won. There's no one route to success. Now, when I study the athletes of the past, I am most drawn to the ones who were consistent. Pete Sampras, one of the memos concludes by discussing an article about Pete Sampras, who was a great tennis champion. And the article said his highs were not very different from his lows. Now they were talking about how boring he is. 
and how unexciting he was. And I said in the memo, you know, you can interpret that two ways. First, what it means, you could say, well, it means that on his best day, he didn't do much better than on his worst day. Well, that's not very good. He didn't have those great days that every champion should have. But on the other hand, you can read it as to say on his bad days, he didn't do much worse than his best days. That's pretty good if you can maintain a consistency and performance at a high standard for a long time over a lot of trials, you'll have one of the best records in history. So it all depends on how you look at it. And I'll sum it up by saying that I once got a fortune cookie in a restaurant and it said the cautious seldom err or write great poetry. When I studied Zen Buddhism in college, I learned about something called a koan, a riddle. To me, I still think about this fortune cookie. To me, it's still a riddle. What is it saying? Is it saying that it's good to be cautious because you seldom make mistakes? The price is you don't write great poetry. Or is it saying you should be incautious because only by throwing over your caution will you be able to write great poetry? Of course, you'll make some errors. And the answer is both are right. And for some people, given their personality and their assignment, it's great to be optimistic, confident, and aggressive. I think that confidence is extremely positive when it is merited. If somebody is able to do something in a superior way, truthfully, that person should be confident. If she's not confident, if she's able but not confident, that means she has a talent which is being underused and she should step up and be more assertive and rely more heavily on that ability, whatever it might be. But in contrast, having confidence which exceeds the merits is dangerous. Mark Twain is reputed to have said, it's not what you don't know that gets you into trouble, it's what you know for certain that just ain't true. So my mother used to say, among other things in this saying, he who knows but knows not that he knows is sleeping, wake him. He who knows not and knows not he knows not is a fool, shun him. I think that's a great saying. There are lots of great quotes on the subject. One of them is from Amos Tversky, who was Danny Kahneman's partner in really creating behavioralism. And he said, it's frightening to realize you don't know something, but even more frightening to realize that the world is run by people who believe they do. It's all about the folly of having confidence which exceeds what is justified. You shouldn't have less confidence than is justified, but you also shouldn't have more confidence than is justified. And among the two, the latter is more dangerous. No sentence that starts with, I don't know, but has ever gotten anybody in big trouble. The sentences that cause the big trouble are the ones that start with, I'm 100% sure that that's how you get into big trouble. I've only had someone say that to me once in my life. It's 100% certain that this will happen by the end of the year. And guess what? It didn't happen, and he never mentioned it again. And of course, I was polite enough not to mention it again. I look back at my career, I see that given my natural conservatism and the fact that in 1978, I appropriately ended up in the fixed income department, I think it's more important to be defensive. And when I look at Oak Tree's record, what I see more than anything else is that we've been in business 26 years at Oak Tree. We worked together nine years before that at TCW. That's a 35-year record. 
And we've had 25 strategies for 35 years. Well, not all of them for 35 years, but over that course of that time. So we probably have, what's that, about a thousand years of strategy history. We've never had, in my opinion, one that's really embarrassing. One where you would look at the record and you say, what did the guy take a year off? Or was he intoxicated that year? And it's that consistency for me and the absence of bombs that to me is most satisfactory. I think that people impute intelligence to the market. And first of all, the newscasters say at the end of the day, the market went up because of this and the market went down because of that and the stocks dropped because of this and so forth. And I always say, how do they know? I don't know at the end of the day why the market did what it did. Where do you go? Where do these people go to find out what the market did? And they are connecting the market development, let's say the market goes up. They say, well, which was the strongest positive force that was apparent today? And they say, well, that's why the market went up and vice versa. But they don't know. The market is not always rational. The performance is not always the direct result of one factor in either direction. But more importantly, people say things like, what did yesterday's performance tell you? What did it tell you to do? I'm trying to remember. I think it was in the first quarter of 2015 that the market got off to its worst start ever. It was weak because of a lot of things going on in the world, and in particular, the price of oil was collapsing. And I wrote a memo called On the Couch because I said that every once in a while, people need a trip to the shrink or the market needs a trip to the shrink because the market is either manic or depressive. And sometimes the market gets manic or depressive for some crazy reasons. And at this juncture, there were several negative forces weighing on the market, one of which, as I say, was the collapse in oil prices. But the market usually views everything positively or everything negatively. It exaggerates the positives and ignores the negatives, or it exaggerates the negatives and ignores the positives. And on those occasions, it needs a trip to the shrink. And the shrink has to analyze the thinking and assess whether the thinking is reasonable. And often it's not. And I included two cartoons in this memo, one of which said everything that was positive yesterday is negative today. And the other one showed how one phenomenon, rising interest rates, can be interpreted either negative or positively depending on your mood. When I write the memos, I tend to go on TV to discuss them. And I was discussing the memo with Eric Schatzker of Bloomberg. And he or his colleague kept saying, but the market's down. Doesn't that tell you that something's wrong? The market's down. Doesn't tell you that you should sell. And so there have been a few occasions in my memo writing career that I ran back to my office to write a memo. And this was one of them. And I put out a memo, I think two business days later, entitled, What Does the Market Know? The market doesn't know anything. The market is merely the consensus of you and me and all the other investors. If my market IQ is 100 and yours is 80 and somebody else is 110 and somebody else is 90, on average, the market IQ of the market is 97. It's not as high as the smartest person, but it certainly isn't any smarter than the average person. And it reflects average thinking. Average thinking is, in my opinion, often wrong. I'm tempted to say usually wrong. I wouldn't say always wrong, but it's often wrong. And so... I think the worst thing you can do is take your advice from the market. What does the market know that you don't know? And if you think about it, 
the rising market, all we know is that it connotes confidence and optimism, fearlessness. And should we buy when the market is fearless? The falling market connotes pessimism and depression and a lack of any ability to move forward positively. Should we take that as a message to sell? Or should we say that the despondency which is being exhibited creates a buying opportunity? So again, I don't think that most investors are right all the time. I don't think the market is right all or most of the time. And I think we absolutely should not take our direction from the market. The market changes. First of all, at one point, there's momentum in one direction, and then that momentum gives way to correction. And by the way, there are people who get rich buying the stocks who went up the most. There are people who get rich buying the stocks that go down the most, but it doesn't work all the time in both directions. And I think the market uh, is not smart enough to tell us what to do. If the herd holds a collective opinion, there's a fair chance that either it's wrong because it overreacts to something superficial or its force, its validity is overrated. And consequently, it has distorted stock prices or security prices in a way we can take advantage of. That is not to say that the herd is always wrong. My first book, The Most Important Thing, there's an illuminated edition in which a few observers plus me inserted little notes about what had been written, reactions to what had been written. And my friend Joel Greenblatt, who was an extremely successful equity investor, inserted in the chapter on contrarianism, just because five other people refuse to stand in the path of an oncoming semi-truck doesn't mean you should. So it's not that contrarianism always works, or the herd is always wrong, but I think that it's a good starting point that when the herd unanimously or semi-unanimously holds a certain position, you can game against it. First of all, certainly that position is reflected in the market prices and usually over-reflected and doing the opposite is desirable. But it's not enough to say, I want to do the opposite of what the herd's doing. Being a contrarian it requires a demanding process of saying, what is the herd doing? What is it based on? What's wrong with that position? What is the truth? What should I do? It's a lot more nuanced than saying I want to always have a position which is opposite that of the herd. But I think that usually the people who hold the confident positions are the people who are part of the herd and contribute to the herd. And the natural contrarian, who is by definition a member of the I don't know school, is a skeptic and usually in good position to take advantage of the errors of the herd. A lot of my enjoyment comes when I look back at the memos and I see that they held up over time. I wouldn't say they're prescient in predicting the future, but they do a good job at finding the themes that rhyme from time to time in various cycles in the sense that Mark Twain says history does not repeat, but it rhymes. And I think it's great when a memo written 15 years ago is descriptive of today because it highlights the themes that rhyme. And so I think that an investor can very profitably spend time studying the past understanding the atmospherics of the past, importantly, not just the facts of history, but the feelings that were around at the time and extrapolating from them with the caveat that sometimes things are really different. We can benefit from understanding history and the tendencies in the past, but each deviation from the past 
is explained with the rationalization it's different this time, we must bear in mind that sometimes it really is different. And that fact in itself stands out as one of those that make investing not easy. And now, here's Us and Them by Howard Marks. As a kid, I, and probably you, viewed the world in simple terms. There were good guys and bad guys, Americans and commies, cops and robbers, settlers and redcoats, the Dodgers I cheered for, and the Yankees who always won. Over time, my view of the investment community has settled into an equally clear distinction, us and them. You've heard a lot from me about the difference between the I know school and the I don't know school concepts I introduced in What's It All About Alpha, July 2001, and elaborated on in The Realist's Creed, May 2002. In the last few years, it has become clear to me that we don't differ from them just in terms of how much we think we know about the future, but in many other ways as well. Do you know or don't you? Most of the investors I've met over the years have belonged to the I know school. This was particularly true in 1968 to 78 when I analyzed equities, and even in 1978 to 95 when I had switched to non-mainstream investments but still worked at equity-centric money management firms. It's easy to identify members of the I know school. They think knowledge of the future direction of economies, interest rates, markets, and widely followed mainstream stocks is essential for investment success. They're confident it can be achieved. They know they can do it. They're aware that lots of other people are trying to do it too, but they figure either A, everyone can be successful at the same time, or B, only a few can be, but they're among them. They're comfortable investing based on their opinions regarding the future. They're also glad to share their views with others, even though correct forecasts should be of such great value that no one would give them away gratis. They rarely look back to rigorously assess their record as forecasters. Confident is the key word for describing members of this school. For the I don't know school, on the other hand, the word, especially when dealing with the macro future, is guarded. Its adherents generally believe you can't know the future, you don't have to know the future, and the proper goal is to do the best possible job of investing in the absence of that knowledge. The Benefits of Membership As a member of the I Know School, you get to opine on the future, and maybe have people take notes. You may be sought out for your opinions and considered a desirable dinner guest, especially when the stock market's going up. Join the I don't know school and the results are more mixed. You'll soon tire of saying, I don't know, to friends and strangers alike. After a while, even relatives will stop asking where you think the market's going. You'll never get to enjoy that one in 1,000 moment when your forecast comes true and the Wall Street Journal runs your picture. On the other hand, you'll be spared all those times when forecasts miss the mark, as well as the losses that can result from investing based on overrated knowledge of the future. But how do you think it feels to have prospective clients ask about your investment outlook and have to say, I have no idea? For me, the bottom line on which school is best comes from the late Stanford behaviorist Amos Tversky. 
It's frightening to think that you might not know something, but more frightening to think that, by and large, the world is run by people who have faith that they know exactly what's going on. Random House's secondary definition for the word syndrome is a group of related or coincident things, events, actions, etc. This suggests a set of elements that can be viewed separately but take on greater meaning when considered together. And the more I think about it, the more I see such a pattern in the contrasting styles of investment industry participants. Investors don't just differ in regard to their views on foreknowledge, but in terms of a large number of elements, and the pattern among those elements seems to be consistent. Correlated, not random. Ask yourself, for example, whether the I don't know school is evenly divided between bulls and bears. Maybe. But in my experience, members of the I don't know school tend to trust less in the market than those of the I know school. That's an example of the pattern, or syndrome, that I think investors tend to demonstrate in many regards. In my memo, Returns and How They Got That Way, November 2002, I gave examples from a brilliant dichotomization propounded by Nicholas Talib. His book, Fooled by Randomness, has as its theme the pervasive role of luck in investing and the tendency of people to overlook its effect. He provides a list of paired terms in which the first of each pair can sometimes be easily mistaken for those in the second. Luck versus skill. Randomness versus determinism. Probability versus certainty. Belief, conjecture, versus knowledge, certitude. Theory versus reality. Anecdote, coincidence, versus causality, law. Survivorship bias versus market outperformance. Lucky idiot versus skilled investor. My point here and my reason for referencing part of Talib's table is my belief that there are people who adhere to the first term of each pair and there are people who adhere to the second term of each pair, but few who adhere to some of each. Some people think their ability to infer causality and analyze data makes them skilled investors, capable of producing consistent outperformance. Others understand that luck plays a big part, that a lot of apparent causality is really coincidence, and that the person crowned the most skilled investor in a given year might be nothing more than a lucky idiot. Very few people mix aspects from both sets of terms. I can think of many qualities that seem to go together to define one of the two main types of investor, but not the other. I'll discuss them in a moment and attribute them to either the oak tree style investors, with whom I tend to associate, us, or the other sort of investor, them. Personality type. It would be great to either be middle of the road and dispassionate all the time, or better yet, bullish or bearish at just the right time. But few people can achieve either of those ideals. Most investors are congenitally either bullish or bearish, and I've never seen anyone capable of flipping in an adroit and timely manner from one to the other. For most of us, it's either bullish most of the time or bearish most of the time, right or wrong. For many of the outstanding investors I've come across, it's the latter. 
and I shouldn't say bearish. I've just used that word as shorthand for a number of others. But the us-style investor tends to be cautious and defensive, while the they-style investor tends to be optimistic, confident, and aggressive. And the investors I like most are patient. Because they know they can't be right every time, their real concern is with the long run. On the other hand, the I-know investor feels he has a good handle on what lies ahead and thus plans to do an above-average job every year. An admirable goal, perhaps, but I don't think highly achievable. Hunt for upside or avoid downside. One of the most significant ways in which these differences manifest themselves is in terms of attitude toward risk. If you're confident that you know what the future holds, risk isn't frightening. But if you're convinced that you don't have that good a handle on the future, it's hard to be very cocky. Our kind of investor is preoccupied by risk, whereas I think the other is often oblivious to it. Our kind worries about what can go wrong, while the other revels in what might go right. Ours tries to avoid mistakes, and the other concentrates on finding winners. Ours obsesses about the losers he might buy or hold, while the other dwells on the opportunities he might miss. In short, it's offense versus defense. Other Aspects of Investment Style The optimist tends more often than not to be a growth investor. He's confident that above-average growth can be perpetuated and that he can identify the companies that'll do so. The more cautious investor looks for value, for tangible attributes that can be counted on for price support, even if confidence in the company proves to be unwarranted. Our school of investing puts great emphasis on being a contrarian. If you want to buy something of solid value and you want to buy it for less than it's worth, you'll have a better chance if you look among assets, companies, and markets that are out of favor. Thus, we're happiest when we're not part of the herd. We prefer to watch the herd's extreme boom-bust behavior and profit from its mistakes. Most other investors seem to be happy when they're part of the herd and following the trend. Our kind of investor likes to average down. He holds a firm view of his securities value and wants to increase his holdings at lower prices. Thus, he likes to see prices decline. Although he's not cocky enough to completely dismiss the possibility that the market's right rather than him. The trend follower wants to see appreciation and is disheartened by initial declines. In fact, I think he prefers to average up as appreciation validates his thesis. Certain that his forecasts are right and his portfolio is properly positioned, the I-know investor wants to let his profits ride. The I-don't-know investor is painfully aware of how much he doesn't know, how much of his performance is beyond his control, that good fortune may have contributed to his results to date, and that events can easily turn against him. Thus, he's happy taking profits and banking some of his gains. If appreciation occurs beyond his expectations, it makes him stop and think, and maybe sell, not just celebrate. The we investor is comfortable holding cash when he can't find attractive investments. At the present time, a number of the investors I most respect are holding or returning significant amounts of cash or closing their funds. The confident them investor is pained by cash 
He thinks he always should be able to find something worth buying, and he tends to be more relative return-oriented, and thus worried that an index or competitor might beat him if he isn't fully invested. I see an extreme dichotomy in the fact that the us investor worries about losing money, while the other worries about underperforming. I can't claim to be 100% the former because I, and most of Oaktree's clients, think that in the long run, the best manager is the one who beats the others. That's something that's hard to argue with. But my desire for relative performance doesn't make me comfortable with losses. Lastly, because the I-don't-know investor is highly conscious of his limitations, he is likely to aggressively limit his assets under management. Most of the I-know investors, who tend to work in the more liquid mainstream markets, never met a dollar of AUM they didn't like, or didn't feel they could achieve great things with. Attitudes Toward the Market the actions of they investors are often driven by their views regarding the outlook for the market. They invest more aggressively when the outlook's positive than they do when it's negative. Although, as I said before, they're usually positive. We investors tend to invest from the bottom up, primarily basing investment decisions on whether attractive individual investment opportunities are available. In fact, I'm often struck by the fact that they are preoccupied with studying and assessing the behavior of the market, which collectively means studying themselves. My favorite investors, both inside and outside Oak Tree, spend their time almost exclusively looking into individual companies and their securities. One of the greatest dichotomies is that they impute intelligence to the market while we are highly skeptical of it. Trillions of dollars were lost after 1998 to 99 because the mass of investors hadn't sufficiently questioned the valuations of tech stocks. They'd been told the market's efficient and assumed that if a stock was selling at a price, that meant the price was justified. The investors I respect feel the market's often wrong, either underpricing or overpricing securities. And more than anything else, they look for opportunities to profit from those errors. In their view, as Dickens said about the law, the market's an ass. So, where do we stand today? The market is a big arena where optimists and pessimists engage in a tug-of-war. When optimism is rising relative to pessimism, meaning more money wants to get put to work than wants to exit, prices rise, and vice versa. The market has been going roughly sideways for the last few months, meaning the two camps are in rough balance. But that doesn't mean they're not both out there. Everyone had a great year in 2003, and they seem to think it's going to continue. They're cheered by signs of economic recovery, corporate profit gains, and job growth. We, on the other hand, worry about the things that could result in disappointment like the lackluster economic and employment gains, and the trade and budget deficits. We also worry about structural issues, such as the U.S.'s reliance on foreign capital, the questionable outlook for the dollar, and the consumer's high level of indebtedness and low level of savings. Lastly, we feel the possibility of domestic terrorism hangs out there like a sword of Damocles. A particularly striking difference can be seen in current attitudes toward interest rates. Rates do a great deal to influence the vitality of the economy and the price and relative attractiveness of market sectors. 
Today's low rates encourage growth and borrowing. They also reduce the competition to stocks posed by bonds and money market securities. Finally, since interest rates are used in present value calculations to discount future cash flows, lower interest rates result in higher valuations for all assets. Obviously, then, today's record low rates go a long way to explaining what's going on in the investment world. With money market securities yielding 1% and treasury notes at 3 to 4%, yields of 6 to 8% and high-yield bonds look attractive. Market-neutral hedge funds look like a bonanza at 9 to 11%, and expectations of 15 to 20% are enough to attract money to private equity, rather than the old 25 to 30%. Just as importantly, low interest rates lower the hurdle return for equities and justify P.E. ratios in the high 20s. What sums it up is the line that stocks aren't overpriced given the current level of interest rates. They derive comfort from the fact that today's valuations are consistent with today's rates, while we worry about the impact on valuations that a rise in rates would have. Rates can't go down all that much but there's plenty of room for them to go up. I still have the framed notice from 1980 telling me that the rate on my bank loan had reached 22 and one quarter percent. That tells me that P.E. ratios can't rationally go up much more, but there's plenty of room for them to go down. And if we ignore the threat of a rate rise and merely assume that rates will hold steady, the resulting return on the average stock would be just in line with normal profits growth in mid-single digits. So the optimist is cheered by the low rates and their stimulative power, and the pessimist is concerned about the risk implicit in a possible rate rise. Or, as it seems to me, we worry about valuations and they feel comfortable on the subject, as usual. How about an example? Rather than hold up my oak tree colleagues as exemplars of astute us-style investors, which I think they are, I'd like to propose an unnamed investor for your consideration. I'll tick off his credentials for inclusion, as I see them, and throw in a few quotes from his recent writings. He never bases his investment actions on forecasts for the economy or market. The cemetery for Sears has a huge section set aside for macro forecasters. We have, in fact, made few macro forecasts, and we have seldom seen others make them with sustained success. Rather, his actions are strictly determined by the availability of attractive investment opportunities. Under any market or economic conditions, we will be happy to buy businesses that meet our standards. He's a solid investor in value, be it derived from current cash flow, unique market position, or special human resources. Because of his risk awareness and desire to avoid losers, he always insists on a generous margin of safety. He is absolutely unconcerned if an index or competitor outperforms him for a year or two, but he insists on avoiding losses. Losing less than his competitors is not his definition of success. When attractive investment opportunities are few, he's willing to stand at the plate with the bat on his shoulder, something he says he's doing a lot of nowadays. In 2003, that caused his holdings of cash to triple. Our capital is underutilized now. It's a painful condition to be in, but not as painful as doing something stupid. He seems happiest when betting against the herd. For example, 
On the subject of distressed bonds, he says, Yesterday's weeds, which yielded 30 to 50 percent in 2002, are being priced as today's flowers, and thus yielding 4 to 6 percent. He's written me that he liked them better when they were weeds. Certainly, he's a patient long-term investor, and, in fact, not much of a profit-taker. He recently expressed some regret about having not sold during the Great Bubble. He is very conscious of the effect of increased capital on investment returns. When a manager tells you that increased funds won't hurt his investment performance, step back. His nose is about to grow. There are lots of ways to skin the cat, and certainly there are successful investors among them. But the characteristics just enumerated have provided the foundation for Warren Buffett's incredible record, and that makes them good enough for me. To help you see the picture I'm suggesting and evaluate the investors you come across, I've prepared a quick and dirty checklist that I'll speak to momentarily. Few people will hit every point on the head, but I think you'll recognize in the list a lot of the they school investors you know, and also on the list, hopefully, a few from the us school. Each year, especially in good times, the headlines will go to those in the they school who guess correctly. But in the long run, I think it's the people from the we school who'll be celebrated most. In today's trend toward hedge funds, I see a growing preference, whether conscious or unconscious, for us investors over them. Consistent, risk-conscious, non-market-based investing is enjoying great popularity right now. I've considered it the ticket for almost three decades. And by the way, I have one last thing to say. Vive la différence! In order for us to be contrarians, there has to be someone to be contrary to. If everyone invested our way, the opportunities we prize would be few and far between. The best opportunities for investment returns aren't created by companies, exchanges, or paper securities. They result from the mistakes other investors make. It's Oak Tree's job to take advantage of them. May 7, 2004 and now, here are the characteristics of us and them. First, these are the characteristics of them. I know. Bullish by nature. Aggressive. Confident. Comfortable with risk. What might go right? Worried about winners missed. Trend followers. Attracted to pretty flowers. Comfortable when part of the crowd. Growth momentum investors. Great things cost a lot. Believers. We're in a new era. Cheered by appreciation. Enjoy averaging up. Let it ride. Relative return oriented. Worried about underperforming. Pained by cash. Confident in their powers. Convinced that their good returns are fully deserved. Impatient. Short-term fixated. Never worried by large amounts of capital. Engrossed in watching the market. The market's efficient. And now, here are the characteristics of us. I don't know. Bearish by nature. Defensive. Guarded. Obsessed with risk. What might go wrong? Worried about losers bought. Contrarians. 
glad to search among the weeds. Happy when apart from the crowd. Value investors. Insistent on buying cheap. Skeptics. Trees don't grow to the sky. Frightened by excessive appreciation. Enjoy averaging down. Eager to take profits. Absolute return oriented. Worried about losing money. Comfortable with cash. Aware that much is beyond their control. Highly conscious of the role played by luck. Patient. Long-term oriented. Aware that it's possible to have too much capital. Devoted to watching companies. The market's an ass. For them, these are the indications that everything's okay. Economic recovery underway. Corporate profit gains. Increases in productivity. Continuing foreign investment. Ability of weak dollar to bolster exports. Existence of job growth. Optimism implied by willingness to borrow. Strong military capability. Low level of interest rates. Today's security prices are justified by low rates. And now, for us, these are the indications that worries abound. Movement of jobs overseas. Gaping trade deficit. Growing budget deficit. Reliance on foreign capital. Threat to value of the dollar. Halting nature of job growth. Consumers' high debt, low savings. Risk of terrorism. Risk of interest rate rise. Today's security prices are reliant on rates staying low. Thank you for listening to The Memo by Howard Marks. To hear more episodes, be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. This podcast expresses the views of the author as of the date indicated and such views are subject to change without notice. Oak Tree has no duty or obligation to update the information contained herein. Further, Oak Tree makes no representation and it should not be assumed that past investment performance is an indication of future results. Moreover, wherever there is a potential for profit, there is also the possibility of loss. This podcast is being made available for educational purposes only and should not be used for any other purpose. The information contained herein does not constitute and should not be construed as an offering of advisory services or an offer to sell or solicitation to buy any securities or related financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Certain information contained herein concerning economic trends and performances based on or derived from information provided by independent third-party sources. Oak Tree Capital Management, LP, Oak Tree, believes that the sources from which such information has been obtained are reliable. However, it cannot guarantee the accuracy of such information and has not independently verified the accuracy or completeness of such information or the assumptions on which such information is based. This podcast, including the information contained herein, may not be copied, reproduced, republished, or posted in whole or in part in any form without the prior written consent of Oak Tree. Audiation.